Our first reading is from Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Amos was from the southern part of Judah, just north of the northern border of Israel. And he was called by God to go testify to the people in Bethel, which was part of northern Israel. And he rebuked them here in these words, and we should probably hear him speaking to us as well. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Our epistle and sermon text comes from, from Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. And this is Paul speaking of Jesus. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 16th chapter. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful excuse me one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth who will entrust you to the true riches and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is the Gospel of the Lord. So let's, uh, Philippians 3, 10 through 12, let's pick up where we talked, uh, where we ended last week, which is salvation is knowing Jesus. So, so knowing Jesus is not like your ticket to get something you want out of salvation. It's not like 
salvation is we need to know Jesus so that we can go to heaven when we die. Or salvation is knowing Jesus so that I won't feel so guilty about the mistakes I've made. Or salvation is knowing Jesus so that I've got like a new community of friends to join up with. All that stuff, of course, is super important, right? But like knowing Jesus is salvation. That's the point. The rest of it's just side effect. All that stuff about, you know, peace and comfort and friends and like when you have hard times, having a place where you can go to get support and uh, knowing that, you, that you'll be with Jesus when you die. All that's just side effect. The real deal is knowing Jesus. And that's what Paul said last week in our reading last week, that what he wants is, what he's chasing after is this all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's what he wants. He's going to unpack that this week. By starting off, he's going to say, that I may know him. So what I, what I, what I want is to know Jesus. I'm going to do, uh, this is, uh, I always, I, I'm, I always make, uh, bad rhetorical mistakes in preaching sermons. Today, though, I'm going to tell you about one right up front that I'm going to do. I'm going to actually try to preach two different sermons uh, in the time that we have here, which is not a smart thing to do. It's usually good to kind of have one point and stick with it so everybody has something to remember. I'm going to try and do two different things. The first thing we're going to do is talk about what it means to know Jesus in Philippians 3, 10, and 11. And there's basically two things that it means here. The first thing is it means to know Jesus means to share his suffering. And right away, hopefully you can start to see that when Paul talks about knowing Jesus, he's not talking about like a math problem in your head. It's more like knowing somebody. You know, I can't, I can't prove Harry to you. That doesn't even make sense. But I know Harry and I can introduce you to Harry. And when, 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 Paul says he longs to know Jesus. What he means is this. I want to share with him in his life. And that means, in the case of Christ, I want to share with him in his suffering. Look at verse, uh, first line of verse 10. That I may know him. That's a, that's a, uh, my goal is, that's what that means there is I want to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I want to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You who are Christians, let me talk to you Christians for a few minutes here. And then at the end, I'll talk to those of you who are thinking about Christianity or struggling with your faith or on the outside looking in for whatever reason. For those of you who are Christians, you have been united by faith to Jesus. Paul talks about this in terms of union with Christ. You've been embedded into Jesus so that what is true of Jesus is true of you. So what God the Father thinks about Jesus, he thinks about you. What that means is that when Jesus died on the cross, you were with him. I want you to think for a second about, like, what's your worst pain? For, for some of you, it's going to be uh, something physical that you just can't shake. For some of you, it'll be psychological. Maybe you struggle with anxiety or depression. Or maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's you've been abandoned by somebody close to you. It could be, I, I don't know what it is. It could be uh, financial. Uh, for a lot of you, it's a whole, uh, like, messy stew of all of these things. It's physical pain and maybe some loneliness, too, and some depression or anxiety that goes along with that and concerns you have over your finances. Maybe it's your own impending death that's sort of hanging over your head. For a lot of us, it isn't, although it should be, maybe. For a lot of you, it is, though. It's the kind of thing that a lot of people are scared about. All of us are scared of it at one time or the other. I want you 
to think for a second. What I want you to do is, I'm, I'm going to say something. I'm going to tell you, this is the words of the gospel, I'm going to say them out loud to you. All of that pain that you experience, it actually belongs to Jesus. And then I want to encourage you, real quickly, I want to think, you think about that pain. I want you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you just heard the words of the gospel, I want you in your heart and mind to right now marry that pain to the cross. I don't want you to see that pain as random. As, well, this is what happens. You know, we all die sometime. Or, well, I don't know what I did to have my friends or my family abandon me. I don't know why my kids don't call. Or, I I don't know. I look around and some people aren't worried about money. But I just don't ever seem to have enough. And I'm in a jam here. I don't want you to see that as random. I want you to see that as connected to the cross of Jesus. All of your pain. It belongs to Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, He reached out into the future and grabbed every single bit of discomfort and pain you've ever had and pulled it to Himself, and it is wedded to Him. And what this does is it does two things. And I know this is review for those of you who've been like here the whole time and working through Philippians. What it does is two things. It gives purpose and meaning to your pain. Your pain is not random. It's not some crazy mixed up world. That's the way things go. It is you sharing in the life of Jesus. It is you being connected to Jesus. It is like the language that Paul says. You are sharing in Jesus' sufferings. The second thing it does, though, is this. For your own heart and for those who see you, they can see you sharing in Jesus' sufferings. You become the conduit. You become the portal to Jesus for them. When I see you guys suffer and I believe the gospel that Paul's saying here, and you believe the gospel that Paul's saying here, I don't just see you suffering. I see you in Christ suffering. You allow me in your suffering to see the crucified Jesus, which is the source of my salvation. Not you having everything together. That's just the source of my frustration, that I don't have it together like you. But if I can see you sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, you are introducing me one more time afresh to the crucified Jesus. That's what it means to know Jesus, is to share in his sufferings. Sufferings are not just random. But they're also not something that we run from. It's not something that you chase after either. It's also not something that you enjoy. Paul, Paul calls this affliction in chapter 1. He's not like saying, I love this. But he is saying that this connects me to Jesus, and so there's a glory here. And it's the glory of the resurrection. This is the second thing that knowing Jesus does, is it's sharing in his resurrection. Again, the first line of verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Verse 11, that by any means possible, that's not language of doubt for Paul. It's language of difficulty. It, it, it's difficult to raise the dead. God can do it though through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection. I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you've been joined up with Jesus in His sufferings, you're joined up with Jesus in His resurrection. And now that means two things in Scripture. Sorry, it's a, 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 a deuce is wild this morning. First of all, it means this. You have been raised with Christ. Paul talks about this frequently in Colossians 3. He says that those of you who know Jesus have been raised with Christ. Past tense. There's a sense that when Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I were raised with Him. And what this means is that you are experiencing Christ's resurrection power even now in your life. It's bits and pieces. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's noticeable. You experience small amounts of victory. 
You experience small amounts of glory, even your suffering. In fact, for those of you who do suffer, I frequently, you will tell me, like, I've never been closer to Jesus than I am now. I've never known the power of God's grace more than I do now in my suffering. That's because if you've been united with him in his death, you're united with him in his resurrection. And Christ's resurrection power belongs to you even right now. But it also means in the future, you will be raised from the dead as well. When Jesus returns, we will be raised. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, all those who are in Christ will be made alive. We're already experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection, but we're not yet completely experiencing the full power of it. Someday when Jesus returns, the full power of Christ's resurrection is going to explode throughout the universe, giving you permanent, glorious new life. You'll never experience pain again, no more suffering again, no more broken relationships ever again, no more struggling with worries or doubts ever again, anxiety or depression, sickness, loneliness, all gone forever. The full power of Christ's resurrection will belong to you. This is what it means to know Jesus, is to experience the power of His death and the power of His resurrection. All right, that's the first sermon. Let's talk, let's do the second sermon, if it's okay. Okay, hard stop. Here's the thing. Here, here's the elephant in the room that if you're a thoughtful person, and I know all you guys are, you're thinking, so, but how do I know Jesus? Like, it's nice to talk about knowing Jesus, but I've never seen Jesus. I don't, I, I can talk to him, I guess, in prayer, but I don't ever hear anything back. Well, I know I can read the Bible, but again, it's a book. It's not a human being. How can I know God? How can I know Jesus? Again, this is not going to be a math problem. I can't prove God to you or Jesus to you any more than I can prove Harry to you. All I can say is like, come and check this out. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to, I'm going to do a three, I'm going to say three things here and they're going to be, they're going to build on each other. And at first you're going to be like, no, I'm not buying it. I can see the Grand Canyon size holes in your argument. But I just want you to hang with me and let these build on each other. And then we'll see what happens. All right? Here's the first thing. It is possible, in principle, to, again, you're going to say, oh, I see what you're doing. Don't pull that on me. Just wait. Let me talk. Don't argue with me. <laughs> it is possible, in principle, to know really well a fictional person. Somebody who doesn't exist, right? Like a a character from a movie or a novel. It's possible to know them really well. Angela is a big Agatha Christie fan. Uh, She introduced me to uh, the the BBC Hercule Poirot mysteries. Some of you watch those, some of you don't. Uh, With David Suchet playing uh, Poirot. And uh, we just have always loved him. We just, within the past year or so, introduced him to the kids. And they love him too. Uh, David Suchet is uh, a character actor. Uh, he was in Harry and the Hendersons and some other stuff back in the 1980s. And then he got hired to be uh, uh, Hercule Poirot. And he's, incidentally, he's a believer. He's a devout Christian, uh, David Suchet is. I recently read David Suchet's biography, which, in, which is entitled uh, uh, Being Poirot. And what he says in there is, when I got hired to be Poirot, and the entire book is about this, is he knew him. He learned him in order to become him. And this is what he says. 
This is what he did when he was hired to do this part, and he knew I wanted to know this guy. Poirot, by the way, doesn't exist. He was created as a fictional character created by Agatha Christie. Suchet says this, When I found out I was going to get this job, I started by collecting copies of all the novels and short stories featuring Poirot, and I piled them up beside my bed. I wanted to get to the very heart of what Agatha Christie thought of him and what he was really like. And to do that, I had to read every word his creator had written about him. I didn't want him to be a caricature. I wanted him to be real, as real as he was in the books, as real as I could possibly make him. This is real early in the book. And then he goes on to talk about how he did this. He studied this. He read these Agatha Christie short stories and novels over and over and over again. He tried them on for size. He would read them and then he would put himself in the story and try to be Poirot in the story. He got to where he began identifying with him in such a way that he says this. So one of his goals was to act out the part of Poirot in every single novel and short story that Agatha Christie wrote about Poirot, which was a ton. Agatha Christie really churned him out. And at the end, in 2012, he filmed the final one, the, the, the one where Agatha Christie wrote Poirot's death scene. And he said this, he says, on that day, on that sound stage, when Hercule Poirot died in that last episode, and the lights went off, and the director said, cut, a part of me died with him. It became so real to him, and he does not, he's a character actor, so that he's a different kind of character, right? But he's, Poirot became so real that he knew him so well that he was sad and actually had to mourn letting him go. This is a real thing. Right now, Poirot's not real. And some of you are going to say, well, that doesn't work. You're pretending like maybe Jesus. Well, just hold on. Let me, let me keep on talking. It's in, it's in principle possible to do this. It's also in principle, this is an easy step, right? It's in principle possible to really know a historical character that you've never met, somebody who's died a long time ago. Let me give you a bad example of this. Bill James is a favorite, is one of my favorite writers. Now, he's a baseball writer. He's kind of the father of the sabermetric revolution. He's kind of changed the way people think about baseball. But one of the things he writes about is uh, true crime. And he wrote a book several years ago where he solved, he and his daughter solved a series of serial killings from the 19-teens. It couldn't possibly have been solved in the 19-teens because the guy who committed these serial killings always committed them within 50 to 100 yards of a freight train route. He would jump off a train at night find a house, kill everybody inside the house, get back on the train, and leave. The title of the book is The Man from the Train. And before the internet, where you could trade information across long distances, the local newspaper would write this up. The police police in that town would find some likely suspect, try them, execute them for the crime. Meanwhile, the person who committed the crime was already on to the next town doing the same crime. But nobody in that town, two states over, was reading the newspapers from this little town, two states over here. Until Bill James and his daughter thought, I bet there's an MO here. I bet the guy who committed the crime, the, 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 the crime that got them into this was the famous, uh, it's creepy for me to even talk about this. I apologize if this weirds you out. The famous axe murders in Villisca, Iowa in 1912. He thought, I bet that there's other crimes just like this. He found 50 of them all across the United States within a span of 10 years, all committed exactly the same way. He traced them back and named, actually named the guy who did it. He says in this book, I got to know this guy so well, I like had to take showers. 
to be inside this guy's head, to know who he is, to almost become friends and companions with a dark and evil and twisted person was an experience so real and visceral for Bill James that he had to, like when he was done with the book, put it away, not read it again, not talk about it, not think about it, try as best as he could to forget it. This is possible. You know, you know people, people say this about, you know, you write a book about Abraham Lincoln and you feel the same way. All right, third step. If this is possible, then it's possible, I think, to know Jesus by the same means. First move. You have to do what David Suchet did with the Agatha Christie novels. You have to read every word you can about him. And now some people will say, I don't really feel like I know Jesus. And my first move is going to be like first grade Sunday school. Well, how much do you read your Bible? Well, not a lot. Okay, well, that's actually it. If you want to know who Hercule Poirot is, you actually have to start reading the Hercule Poirot novels. If you want to know who Jesus is, you actually have to start learning him. Get into his head. This is why the Bible gives us four different accounts of his life, so that you can get into this guy's head. So you can start to know him and start to meet him. However, for you, it's even better. Because unlike Hercule Poirot, who doesn't exist, and you have to use your imagination to make up some parts of him to fill in the blanks, unlike Abraham Lincoln, who does exist, so there is a real guy, but it's impossible to talk to him because he's dead, unlike somebody who lives a couple towns over who you've never met, and if you want to know that person, you actually have to get in your car, drive to his house, and make the effort to know him. This is different. You don't have to actually make the effort to know Jesus because he's already made the effort to know you. So sometimes we think about knowing God or knowing Jesus like you're standing in the the, the waiting room of a crowded airport or a train station. There's all these people milling around and you've got to like, where's Waldo style? Try to find him out and be like, I'm going to chase him down, and that's him right there. I'm going to go try and find him. And then there's some crowds, people getting, and I lost him. I thought I knew him, but he's gone. It's actually not like that. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, Paul says. I don't actually already know Jesus. It's one of the things that you'll find out about knowing people, including Jesus, is you never 100% know anybody. There's always more to know. There's always like unexpected horizons of discoveries just around the corner. I've not already obtained this, or I'm not already perfect, Paul says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Christ has actually come and looked for you first. He's initiating this relationship. And this is the difference between knowing the man from the train or knowing Abraham Lincoln or knowing any historical character is that we have the Holy Spirit. What does it mean that Christ Jesus has made me His own? It means the same thing He means back up in verse 3 of chapter 3. Those who know Jesus worship Him in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has already brought Jesus and introduced Him to you guys. And now it's just a matter of sitting down and learning Him. And that's what the whole, that's the name of the game. So this whole shebang is about. That's the goal. The goal isn't some paradise in the sky. It's a nice side effect. The goal is knowing Jesus. And it's totally possible because Jesus already knows you. Amen.